Throughout the seven weeks of Easter, we're turning to 1 Peter to explore the implications of the resurrection for our manner of living in the world. And our passage today continues to build upon what has become, at this point, a well-established theme, and that is the new birth. In chapter 1, Peter says that we have been born again, or begotten again, to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. We have a new father, and with a new father comes a new family, and with a new father comes a new inheritance. And as children of the Father, we are expected to be obedient. We are expected to grow up to be holy like he is holy. And Peter says this this obedient holiness is chiefly expressed in the pure and earnest love we have for one another. He says, love one another earnestly from a pure heart since you have been born again. Not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. Born again through the living and abiding word of God. Now, I don't, I don't mean to make you blush, um, but in context, this reference to a seed is a reproductive reference. We have been born again by an imperishable seed, a divine seed, known as the Word of God. And that brings us to chapter 2. Peter begins with a list of vices that prevent us from loving one another from a pure heart. Put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. These are things that, that choke out earnest mutual love. These are things that prevent us from being the community we are called to be. Instead, he says, having been born again by an imperishable seed, like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. In other words, we are spiritual newborns, and so Peter says, grow up. It's time to grow up. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk. When you are an infant, when you're an infant, milk is not a fringe benefit. Milk is not a luxury. It's not an optional add-on to your life. When you're an infant, milk is life. Peter says that we, as, as God's children, ought to be that desperate, that desperate, for spiritual nourishment. And this, this pure spiritual milk is the gospel message itself, the living and abiding word by which we have been born again. And within the first chapter alone, Peter has, has already articulated the gospel message for us in a number of different ways. The gospel is this. By God's great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. The gospel is this. The long-awaited Messiah has come, and he has suffered, and he has been raised up in glory. The gospel message is this. 
We are God's beloved children, adopted out of our former ignorance and into his holy family. The gospel is this. We have been ransomed by the precious blood of Christ like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Thus, the call to crave pure spiritual milk, is, it's not necessarily a call to crave more Bible studies or more early morning devotions. Pure spiritual milk has a, a much broader meaning than that. Peter is referring to all the things that nourish us spiritually. All of the things that help the imperishable seed within each of us to take root and, and to grow and to bear fruit. All of the things that, that drive the gospel deeper and deeper into our hearts and into our minds and into our habits. And so, to be sure, Bible study is part of this. But we're also talking about prayer and the sacraments and corporate singing and faithful living and community life and hearing the scriptures read aloud and preached. Pure spiritual milk is anything and everything that nourishes the seed of the gospel and grows the seed of the gospel and causes the seed of the gospel to bear fruit. Do you want that? Do you desire spiritual nourishment? And, and before you answer, do you desire spiritual nourishment like a newborn desires milk? Are you that desperate for, you, for it? Do you kick and scream when you don't have it? Or are you, to some degree, content in your malnourishment? Please, do not settle. Do not allow yourself to be satisfied by anything less than pure spiritual milk. I know it's hard to find the time. I know it's hard to find the margin. I know that work is busy. I know it's been a difficult few years. I know life with little kids is chaotic. I know your health is declining. I know you're feeling depressed. But listen, Peter is not expecting you to qualify for the spiritual Olympics. He's not asking you to do more or to try harder. He's inviting you, like a newborn, to lay back and be fed. If you are here this morning, you are already where you need to be. It, it, it might just be that you need, you need new eyes to see all of the grace that God is trying to pour into you right now. The weekly liturgy is pure spiritual milk for our souls. But, but I, think, I think sometimes we're too busy kicking and screaming against, against whatever to be truly nourished. It's like we all need Lactation consultants. I actually, I actually do think that's a pretty good way to think about the role of a pastor. Um, it may also be a creepy way to think about it. 
But anyway, the point is, allow yourself to be fed. Allow yourself to be fed. So Peter begins chapter 2 with a call to personal growth. We each need to taste that the Lord is good. We each need to long for pure spiritual milk. We each need to take responsibility for our own growth. But Peter calls us to another kind of growth, too, and that's corporate growth. Verse 4. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. We are a spiritual house, the dwelling place of God, constructed of living and growing stones. We are a new temple built upon Christ the cornerstone. But not only are we a temple, we are also a holy priesthood within the temple offering spiritual sacrifices to God. And Peter keeps going in verse 9. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. With all these references... Peter is demonstrating that he is, he is perfectly comfortable taking old covenant imagery concerning the nation of Israel and applying that imagery to the new covenant entity we call the church. And, and we, could spend, we could spend several hours talking through all the different things Peter says about the church. Living stones, spiritual house, holy priesthood, spiritual sacrifices, chosen nation, royal priesthood, and so on. But the fundamental thing I want us to see today is that the Bible's vision for the church is an incredibly high one. The way the Bible speaks about the church is, it's breathtaking. If you sit and pause and think about it, it is breathtaking. To become a Christian is to be born into the family of God. To become a Christian is to be raised to the highest status imaginable. We are children of the living God. We call him Father, and we have a direct line of access to him. The Roman emperor, apart from Christ, was a beggar next to the poorest slave to have received the sacrament of baptism. If God were to to pull back the curtain on the true identity and the true glory of his church in the world, the wealthiest and most powerful people in the world would be utterly humbled to be born again into the family of God is to be raised to the highest status imaginable. Now, to be clear... This this elevated status often takes the form of humility and meekness and a willingness to suffer. After all, Jesus is the king of kings, and so he's pretty high status too. 
But the fact remains, the church is more glorious than most of us realize. And it's not that, that, that Peter's churches were more pure or more godly or more evangelistic or more worshipful or loving or whatever than our church. If verse 1 is any indication, Peter's churches were to some degree full of malice and deceit and hypocrisy and envy and slander. And we know that Paul's churches were full of jealousy and sexual immorality and idolatry and insubordination and rebellion. But here's the thing. The presence of sin in the church did not stop the apostles from saying breathtaking things about her. Remember, Peter wants us to grow up, right? And so by telling us what we are in in, in the loftiest of terms, he is implicitly inviting us to become what we are. Peter is clarifying the, the trajectory of our growth. This is what we are supposed to be growing up into. And so it's, I do think it's appropriate for for the church to turn inward on occasion, for the church to denounce our own sins and our own shortcomings before the world. But, and it's become very easy to do that these days. But how often do we resonate with what Peter is saying here? Even as we criticize the church, even as we denounce her sins and shortcomings, we, we must do so, factoring in the inherent beauty of the bride of Christ. Her inherent glory as the temple of the living God. Her inherent magnificence as a royal family and a holy priesthood. When we understand the profound nature of the church as Peter describes her, then we are in a good place to offer a helpful critique. And so to summarize, um, Peter Peter wants each of us to grow up, and Peter wants all of us to grow up. As individuals, growing up means partaking of pure spiritual milk, prayer, worship, scripture, community, all of the things that drive the gospel deeper and deeper into our hearts and our minds and our habits. As a community, growing up means doing what a holy priesthood is called to do, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. What is a spiritual sacrifice? I think we find the answer in the Psalms. You see, even back, when, even back when animal sacrifice was still a thing, the Psalms were already teaching God's people about true sacrifice. Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving. Offer the sacrifice of righteousness and put your trust in the Lord. The one who offers thanksgiving as his sacrifice glorifies me. With a free will offering, I will sacrifice to you. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. The lifting up of my hands is the evening sacrifice. 
offer sacrifices of thanksgiving and tell of his deeds in songs of joy. In other words, we offer spiritual sacrifices when we offer ourselves to God in worship, which includes walking righteously and practicing gratitude and giving generously and repentance and praise. And notice, again, all of these things are built into our Sunday liturgy. We do all these things together week after week, assuming we prioritize it as the priesthood of God. As the priesthood of God, worship is our primary responsibility. And so to conclude, I do think these verses should challenge us, but I also think these verses should encourage us. We are, we are challenged because we have a lot of growing up to do, both individually and corporately. We all need to be taking responsibility here. But we are also encouraged because in so many ways, we are already participating in the practices that grow us up. Peter is not expecting us to qualify for the spiritual Olympics He is simply inviting us to be fed. And that is what it means to grow up. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, once again, it is good to be your children. It is good to belong to your family. Thank you, God, for feeding us, for nourishing us. Jesus, Jesus, you have raised us up to the highest status imaginable. But may we use our status like you use yours. Holy Spirit, give us, give us new eyes to see all of the grace that you are pouring into us in this moment. Grow us up into Peter's lofty vision for who we are as the people of God. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.